We're going to be in Daniel chapter 9, if you'll open your Bibles there, and we will jump right in. Daniel chapter 9. No pressure on me, Daniel chapter 9 has, you know, if if you're going to list maybe the top five sections in Scripture uh, on prayer, if you took like the top five prayers out of the entire Bible, uh, Daniel 9 would be on the list, and if you took the top five sections of prophecy uh, in the Bible, Daniel 9 would probably make the top of the list. Uh, It'd certainly be in that top five, and uh, they're both in chapter 9, so no pressure on me today to teach one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible. Um, there's a lot to see here, and, uh, and we're not going to do it all in one setting, and we'll do it uh, at least in two, so you'll get part A today. Um, and, you know, as you're still turning there, just kind of by way of introduction, I just ask you a question. How many of you have had one of those moments of clarity, one of those moments in your life where things were, they were kind of obscure, and then all of a sudden, it was like a light bulb went off, right? A few of you have experienced that? Yeah, everybody? Okay. Last night, uh, Brian uh, led, leads worship for us, and, and his wife Katie had us over to their house, and they made us, you know, coffee and espresso and apple pie. It was like a beautiful night, um, and uh, and so anyway, anytime there's apple pie, it's good, and coffee just makes it all that better. So anyway, they had us over last night, and so we're talking, and we're basically talking about how guys don't listen to women, you know, how we like sort of tune out. And Katie was sharing that she had one of those moments of clarity in her life, a light bulb moment when she saw her son Cameron at a birthday party and she saw, you know, both of his his grandmothers and and she, his mom, all of them talking to him all at the same time, giving him all different information. Like, you know, don't spill that. Look over here. Smile for the camera. All these things. And she said, it's no wonder that guys tune women out because we have a tendency to come at them from all these different angles, and they can only take so much, they can only absorb so much, so they just sort of tune it out. Now, this is her talking, not me, so don't throw anything or send me an email, but, but she's saying, this, is, this, this was a light bulb moment for me, this was a moment of clarity, this is why I, I you know, tell my son something, and then he, do, he, doesn't, he tells me he never heard me, and, and so, you know, that was her light bulb moment. I had a similar light bulb moment uh, several years ago, it was, it was 2007, and we had gone on family vacation to Yellowstone, and uh, we went horseback riding, and uh, that was a treat, and you get all out there, and there's all a bunch of different people, and the Wranglers are there with everybody, and, um, and so there's this one guy who's, who's really having a lot of problems with his horse, may or may not have been me, but um, <laughs> it wasn't me, but, but uh, it could have been. But there was a lot of guys, like, you know, getting there. And this one particular guy, his horse would take one step forward and two steps back. And so the rest of the people are going this way, and he's slowly working backwards, going backwards. One step forward, two steps back. And so finally, he calls out, and he says, hey, my horse is defective. And the guy looks at him, he says, you're defective. (laughs) So basically, he went and talked to him. And what he told him was, listen, you are sending the horse conflicting signals. So he said, you're, you're, kicking, you're kicking him, and you're, you know, you know, you're telling him to go, and that tells him to go, but then you're pulling back on his reins, and that tells him to back up. So he's trying to obey conflicting commands, and it's all your fault. And, and so, you know, stop doing that. Well, this was a light bulb moment for me, because I thought, man, this describes the just us as human beings so well. And it, and it prescribes, you know, I don't care who you are, what season of life you're in, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, everybody in life has a tendency to sort of 
vacillate and to, to try and obey these conflicting commands and we end up effectively taking one step forward and two steps back in our life. So, you know, you take a step forward at an altar call and then you take two steps back the next day. And you take a step forward at a men's retreat or a women's retreat and then you come back down off the mountain and you take two steps back. Or you step forward in a church service or in a Bible study and then, you know, you're two steps back into your old routine and, and, and just not making any sort of progress and really not getting traction. Now, Jesus said no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and he'll despise the other. And this absolutely describes us, and in context, where we're at today, it describes the nation of Israel perfectly. Because, well, here's the deal with the nation of Israel. There's a scene in Joshua 24. You don't have to turn there, but basically Joshua's in, in the near, the, uh, nearing the end of his life. And um, he gathers the people together to himself, and he starts talking to them, and he's basically exhorting them, continue in your faith. And, and so as he's talking to them, here's what he says. He says, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In other words, he's telling them, look, you can, you can serve God, you can serve all kinds of false gods, you can serve whatever floats your boat, I'm going to serve God. And what ends up happening is that, uh, indeed, the nation of Israel, for a short period of time, does serve the Lord. They do follow the Lord. They do make the decisions to obey God. And so what happens there is that under the reign and rule of, of, of Joshua and then the elders who, who uh, outlived him, well, the nation of Israel obeyed God. But then what happened was you got into a, 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 just an ongoing a series of events in Israel's history where they vacillated between obedience and disobedience. And so they would follow this repetitive cycle. And, and it's familiar to us because we have a tendency to follow this cycle. And the cycle was this. They would sin. They would experience the judgment of God. They would repent. God would bless them. Then they would sin. And then they would experience the judgment of God. And then they would repent. And then God would bless them. And so it just went, it was like, you know, this merry-go-round that they were on. And the book of Judges records this about this season of time. As a matter of fact, this is the last verse in the book of Judges. And here's what it says. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does that sound familiar? It totally describes the days in which we live. And so what did the people do at this point? Well, what, what the Jews did was they cried out for a king to rule over them. They basically said, listen, give us hope and change. We want a king. And so what God did was he, he, he talks to them through Samuel the prophet. And basically what God says to them, if I can paraphrase God, he says, look, I'm your king. Don't ask for a king. I'm your king. Let me rule over you. But the, the, the Jews persisted. The Israelites persisted. And so what happened was God said, fine, I'm going to give you what you asked for. And so God gave the Israelites a king. 
And then again, what we see is this ongoing merry-go-round, the same thing that they had during the time of the judges. Now they got kings, and what they have is when they have a good king, they obey God, and then they have a a wicked king, they disobey God, and and as the king goes, so goes the nation, and so now you get right back onto this merry-go-round of sin, then judgment, then repentance, then blessing, then sin, then judgment, then repentance, and it's again just this life in which they're living. And ultimately what happened? Their disobedience led them into captivity. And God, just, at, just as he had warned them in Leviticus 26, he, he basically allowed them to be overthrown, to be taken away into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Now, that's a rough history of their history. And now where we pick it up in Daniel chapter 9 is that that 70-year period of them being in captivity is now coming to an end. And as the curtain rises here on Daniel chapter 9, what we do is we find them right now just in that, that, that close of the 70 years. It's like Hey, this 70 years of captivity is up, and here we are. So Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, Daniel says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So he says this happened in the first year of of Darius, and you could write in your margin 538 BC, which is significant. That's the year that we're talking about. Here's why that's significant, because Daniel was taken captive in 605 BC, and so this is the 67-year mark. In other words, they're in the home stretch of this 70 years of of captivity. And Daniel's making it very clear to say, look, I read by the books that this is where we're at. Now, when he says I read by the books, what he's talking about is Scripture. And, And in particular, what he's talking about is he's talking about Jeremiah the prophet. He was reading the the scrolls that Jeremiah had written. And and here's the funny thing about those scrolls, and this is interesting history, but it's pertinent to where we're at today. When Jeremiah prophesied against Israel and Judah, and he he talked to them about their sin, and by by the leading of God, he's prophesying to them about their sin, what God did was he gave him instructions in Jeremiah 36 that he should write it down and deliver it to the house of the Lord. And so these prophecies that God had given to Jeremiah, he said, I want you to write it down and I want you to give it to them in the house of the Lord. And the reason was, and God's hope was, that the people, they would hear the harsh disciplines that were prescribed for them if they didn't repent and that they would now turn and repent. And there's just something about having these warnings in writing. I, several months ago, I was teaching on parenting, and, uh, and in the course of, in context about teaching on parenting, what I lamented on the fact that when we, when we discipline our kids, um, they, um, they're, they're little demons sometimes, because what, <laughs> what happens is our kids, you, you, from the time they're two, you tell them the same thing. And then they turn 14, 15 years old, and they have the audacity to look you square in the eye and to lie to your face and say, I never heard that before. 
And you're like, I've been telling you since you were two, you know? And so what happens is we, we argue, we spend a lot of time arguing. God just gave me, like, opened our eyes one day, and I realized, you know what? We argue about the same thing all the time. It's, it's you know, I'm sitting in the driveway honking the horn. We're late for school, and this happens every single day. We're late for school. And, and or, you know, I'm telling them every day, Pick up your own mess. You know, I'm not, your, I'm not your butler. Your mom's not your maid. You made the mess. You clean it. You know, and there's these certain things that happen. So in our house, picking up after yourself was a common theme. Waiting in the car because they're late for school was a common thing. Not, not having, not having their, their schoolwork ready at a particular time, that was a common theme. Uh, them fighting with one another was a common theme. So what I realized was that there was like 10 things that, that we we thought about a lot. So I'm like, okay, what I developed, what was called the top 10 list. And the top 10 list was, these are the 10 most things that that we argue and fight over. And so I'm sick of arguing and fighting them over. And so here's the thing. If you do this, here's the consequence. And then for the consequence, I developed what we called 31 flavors. It was a list with 31 things on it. Um, And there's 31 days in most months. Because what happens is when your kids when you go to discipline your kids and you're so exasperated and you're so upset that when you go to discipline them, you forget what it was that, or you just, you lose your mind. You're like, you know, you're grounded for like a year. You're grounded for the rest of your life. You can't use your phone until you're 18 and they're 12, you know, or whatever it is. And, and so they're unrealistic. Your kids know that they're natural born gamblers. They'll bet the house that you're not going to follow through. And so, and I told you they're, they're demonic. So what happens is they're betting on the fact that you're going to lose your mind and that you're going to blurt out something that you'll never keep and they'll just, they'll just wait you out. So I came up with 31 flavors. And the, the whole idea of my disciplines was, I'm not going to send you to a room because to me that's a treat. Please send me to my room. Like, I, I, you know, I, how many did send you to your room? All your moms are like, yes, please, I'll go to my room. So if I'm going to discipline my kid, I'm going to do something that's going to benefit the family because you've just robbed from the family. So I'm going to have you go, you know, you're going to contribute back to the family. So a discipline for you is you're going to wash my car because I love that. That's great, you know. So we've got the discipline list and all. And by having it in written form and all that story, just to say this, by writing it down and having it right there, there's just something about having it written down. Now, you got to have the follow through. I had somebody come to my office this week and they said, hey, um, you know, we're having issues with our kids or whatever. And I said, okay, um, hey, you know what? I've got this. And I started describing the discipline list and, the, and, the, 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 and all and, and top 10 list and the discipline list. And, and they said, uh, yeah, we were in that message. We heard that. And I said, how about if I get you a copy of that? How about if you, you, you know, you, you put that into practice? They're so like, yeah, I, you know, and we laugh, you know, oh yeah, we, we heard that. We didn't do it. Come on, we hear a lot of things. That's kind of the theme of where we're at today. We hear a lot of things that we don't do. At least they came to see me and talk to me about it. The point is, we write these things down. We follow through. This is what's going on with Daniel. God says to, or rather with, with Jeremiah, God speaks to him. He gives him all of these consequences. And he basically says, look, I want you to write it down. And I want you to deliver it to, to the people who are being disobedient. I want you to see it. So Jeremiah, he, he instructed his right-hand man, a guy by the name of Baruch, to write it down and to deliver it. And so as, as, he, as he goes and, and he delivers this, the, the message that's been written down, which is a warning to Israel, which basically says, wake up, 
quit doing what you're doing. Here's, if you do this, here's going to be your consequence and, and all. And so they get like four lines, literally, if you read the Bible, they get like four lines into reading for uh, King Jehoiakim, who's in power at this time. And, and, and they get like four lines into it. And, uh, and what he does is he takes the scribe's penknife and he begins to cut the verses out of what the Lord instructed Jeremiah to write down and he begins to throw them in the fire. They were inconvenient. They, he did not want to hear them and he just began to do this. Now we, we say, dude, that's, that right there, I mean, that takes some guts. I mean, you're going to take God, what God says to you and, and in front of God and everyone, you're going to cut it up and you're going to say, this is what I think of this and you're going to throw it in the fire. And yet we do that all the time. Because what happens is God speaks to us in his word. And he has some very, very specific stuff to say to us. And some of it we love. I mean, I love the verses that talk about God's grace and God's mercy and God's forgiveness and his loving kindness and, and the fact that, that he's long-suffering with me, that he's not going to hold his sins against me. I love John 3.16. God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. Whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Love it, love it, love it, love it. But God also has words to say to us of instruction for those of us that have surrendered our life to the Lord. He basically says, listen, I have some expectations of you. I expect that that you are going to die to your flesh. Well, I I don't love that one. I want to cut that one out. I want to to burn it in the fire. You know, God says, look, I don't want you to be self-absorbed. I want you to be other-centered. I want you to, to lay your life down for other people. I want you to give for other people. I want you to give sacrificially of your hard-earned money. We're like, I hate that one. Let me cut that one out. I'm going to burn it. Or God says, look, I don't, you, you need to forgive. You need to, you know, you need to, to forgive your enemies. Here's one that we all hate. How about in, in uh, the book of James in chapter one, I think it's verse two, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Hate that one. Let me just cut that out and burn it. There's your joy right there. That's what I think about that, you know. And so we, we kind of have this attitude, and, and, and the thing is, is that we may not practically take our Bibles and cut the verse out and burn it, but, but in practicality, we effectively cut those verses out whenever we disobey them, whenever we ignore them, whenever we, we don't want to deal with them. But the truth is, is that sooner or later, we're going to have to deal with it because it's the eternal word of God. And so you can either in real life cut the thing out of your Bible and burn it, or you can just in the practicality of saying, yeah, next verse, and skipping over it, which is the same thing, really. But yet what's, what's going to happen is that God is going to have his way. You're believing that, you're accepting that, doesn't make it any less true. Right? And, you know, if you, if you reject that, it doesn't make it any less true. If you say, well, you know what, I, I reject your reality and I insert my own, God's not sitting up in heaven going, oh, what am I going to do? He changed the reality. No, God's going to say, well, whatever, you, you burn it up or not, the word of the Lord stands. As a matter of fact, that's what God's word says. Uh, Jeremiah the prophet said this. He said, um, or Isaiah the prophet, rather, he says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So you can't just cut it out. You can't just toss it in the fire. And so what happens is when you get to the end of Jeremiah 36, yes, earlier in Jeremiah, uh, as, as Jeremiah was instructed to write this down, King Jehoiakim threw it in the fire and burned it up. But in Jeremiah 36, Jeremiah is instructed uh, and instructs uh, Baruch to rewrite the scroll. 
And so he rewrites the scroll, and here in Daniel chapter, chapter 9, verse 2, we, we see that Daniel has a copy of this. The king tried to burn it. The tr- king tried to get rid of it. God says, no, that's my eternal word, and it's going to stand. And so aren't we so glad that it stands? Because here Daniel is, he's got a copy of that scroll, and he indicates that he understood by that scroll the number of years that were specified by God that they would be held in captivity. Now, that's very important there in verse 2. It says that he understood. If you want to circle that word understood, nearby it you could write this. You could write to consider, to discern, and to understand. He understood, he considered, he discerned, and he understood. Now, what that means is that Daniel did more than just read the text. It means he really took a walk with it. It means he really meditated on that text. He really, he just didn't read over it and go on to the next verse, but he said, really, let me think about this. What does this mean? And undoubtedly, what he had read was uh, in Jeremiah 25, verses 11, 12. Remember, he's got the words of Jeremiah. He's got the scroll of Jeremiah. And undoubtedly, he had read this verse. We'll put it on the screen for you. Here's what Jeremiah had said, the words that were preserved, the words that, that, that Daniel is now reading. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years Then it will come to pass, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. Now, here's what I want you to see. This is important. See, where King Jehoiakim rejected God's word, cut it out, and burned it up and, and, and because it didn't fit with his plan, because he didn't want to follow it, because he didn't want to be subject to it. Well, the end result was that having cut it out and burned it, well, the consequence was he led the entire nation into captivity. And where that was what Jehoiakim did, I want you to see that Daniel was very different. As a matter of fact, this is the first point, and you write it down. Daniel was receptive to the word of God. King Jehoiakim rejected the word of God. Daniel, conversely, he was receptive to the word of God. Now, 2 Timothy 3.16 wasn't uh, written yet uh, for Daniel to have access, but God's word is eternal, and so it was still written in in eternity. Uh, It says this, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now, what that means is that Scripture is inspired by God. And people will say to you, you know, when you talk about the Bible, or you might quote the Bible to somebody who doesn't believe, and you might have somebody like, I had a fire captain at one time as I was talking about my faith, and he says, well, who wrote the Bible? And I knew right where he was going. I'm I'm like, you're going to say man, right? He's like, that's right. You know, you talk about the infallible Word of God, but it's written by man. And I'm like, yes, but what you need to understand is that the Bible is inspired by God. I like the way the NIV puts the, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 because it says all scripture is God-breathed. And, and that's the idea here. When it's, inspired, it's written, it's given by inspiration of God, God breathes upon men who would take his word and write it. And so you can have a sinful man who writes the infallible word of God because God has inspired him to do so. And so all scripture is inspired by God. It is infallible. And, and here's what, what uh, Paul tells Timothy that it, it does, it accomplishes. He says, it's profitable for doctrine. In other words, it, it's profitable to tell you what's right. 
And then he says it's profitable for, for reproof, which means that Scripture is profitable to tell you what's wrong. Not only tells you what's right, it tells you what's wrong. And, and it's, it's profitable for correction. In other words, how to get right. So this is what's right, this is what's wrong, here's how to get right, tells you that. It's profitable for instruction in righteousness, which means here's how to stay right. And so this is everything that the Bible does. And what I want you to see is that Daniel, he didn't reject it, he he received it, he was receptive to it. And what Daniel understood, this is huge, Daniel understood that the Bible has significance in a present-day reality. Here's what that means. In other words, Daniel regarded the Word of God as being applicable to his everyday circumstances, to his everyday life, to his everyday situation. And here's my question. Do you? Do you see the Bible that way? Do you regard the Bible that way? See, because so often when we read the Bible, we regard it like it's a story. We'll read the Bible like it's a historical record. It's just that we kind of read it like a history book. Or, or we'll read it maybe like, you know, Pinterest. We treat it that way. We're like, oh, that, that's kind of cool. I, I could do that. That's a nifty little thing. I can do that thing right there. And so we, this is a lot of times the way we approach the Bible. And, and, and it is all these things. It is a historical record. It, it is a story. It is, there are those parts in, in the Bible where we go, oh, that, that's cool. You know, like Pinterest. I want to, oh, that's the, I like that kind of thing. I can, you know, apply that in my life. It is all those things. But it's so much more than that. Here's the thing. The Bible is a daily guide for us in how we're supposed to live our lives. Now, I'll illustrate it this way. When first time I ever went over to Catalina in, in a private boat, I went with a friend of mine in his boat. And, um, and so we took his boat over and, and, and Brenda was all freaked out about me going. And she's like, you know, call the harbor master, make sure it's safe and all this stuff. And, um, and so we head out and we're, we launch there in San Pedro and go outside the break wall. And most of the time when you go over to Catalina, you can't see the island. And that's the, that's the way it was this day. And, um, and I subsequently, this trip was so awesome. I ended up, you know, getting my own boat and going over there as much as I could. But this was the first time I'd ever gone over. We're outside the break wall. We're like, okay, now what? Because we can't see the island. And my buddy Dave's like, well, I got a GPS. So, okay, cool. So we take it out of the package. We didn't know how to operate it. We didn't know how to operate this GPS. And so there we are. I've, I've, I, I have this navigational aid that's going to tell me exactly where we are and exactly where we need to go, and exactly how to get there. But this is the first time I've ever taken it out of the package. I have no idea how this thing operates. See where I'm going with this? The Bible is your navigational aid. And a lot of times, well, we, we, while, while we have it, we don't recognize it. For whatever reason, we see it as a history book or a book of maybe some good principles, but we don't see it as the navigational aid for our lives. We don't really comprehend that the Bible is the only thing that's going to accurately tell you, you are here. I remember I used to, to drive an ambulance in L.A. I was 18 years old, and it was horrible because I didn't know where I was, and they'd give me a call, and you, it's an emergency. i got to go lights and sirens, and I would have to, and it was the days of Thomas Brothers, and I would have to look up where I was first, and then I'd have to look up where I was going because it didn't matter. I could look up the address all day long. I'm like, great, that's where it is. Where am I? I don't know how to, I don't know. And so I would, I would have to look up two things. Here's where I am. Here's where I'm going. I'd have to plot a course. They're getting me on the radio. Where are you? You know, I'm, I'm finding it. I'm trying to find it, you know. And, and this is life. 
See, if you, if you don't understand, the, you, you need to know you, you are here. And, uh, and you're supposed to be over here. And this is what's going to show you that. See, and we need to have God's word. We need to be receptive to God's word in this way. The psalmist said, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The writer of Proverbs says, he who heeds the word wisely will find good, and whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. Again, the psalmist said, how can a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to your word? See, the God of the universe wants to speak to us, and he wants to speak to us in our everyday lives, in an everyday situation, right where you're at. For Brenda and I, when we were um, early in our marriage, and, uh, and I'd been raised in a Christian home, but I'd kind of walked away from the Lord, and, and it really wasn't walking with him, wasn't obeying him. And so now we're married, and, and we got a couple of kids, and, and we're, you know, we start to come back to the Lord. Um, and um, God kind of has a way of drawing you back to himself. So in our life, he's drawing us back, and I, I got to a place where I, I just began taking the GPS out of the case. And started familiarizing myself with it. And so I'm reading, you know, the Bible there one day. And I'm reading through Ephesians 5. And it's telling me, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And so I'm, I'm thinking about that. And I, I'm like, okay, so what, is, what does that really mean? You know, I'm not just reading over it. I'm really, you know, contemplating this. And, and the Lord starts showing me, well, look, here's how I love the church. You know, the church was nailing me to a cross. The church was spitting in my face. The church was saying, you know, die already, effectively. And I said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You know, John 3.16, God so loves the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God demonstrates his own love for, toward us in this, that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the Lord says, that's how, that's how I love my bride, the church, so why don't you love your bride like that? And I, okay. And it's kind of like we talked about last week, you know, it sounds great, and then you get married, <laughs> you know, and then it's a matter of, well, that is, that's not so easy. So Brenda and I, we have this one day, and, and we, we have this fight, and, uh, and I can't remember the fight. All I know is she was wrong, and um, so uh, I get to tell it. You can tell your version of it when you teach the ladies, but she was wrong, and, um, and I was mad, and I'm out, you know, mowing the lawn, and I'm stewing about how mad I am, and the Lord speaks to me navigationally, right in my life, right where I'm at, and he says, hey, um, you remember that really neat kumbaya kind of Bible study you were having where, you know, you were all in agreement with husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church? Yeah, right here, that's kind of where that fits. I'm like, that sucks right there, <laughs> you know? And so, so I just, you know, God convicted me, and I, and I just prayed an honest prayer. I just said, okay, Lord, um, I know it's true. And I know it applies to my life right here, and I know that they go together. i got I got to obey. But man, I, I'm, I'm not in a place where I want to tell my wife that I'm wrong. I'm not in a place where I really want to be, you know, angry or, or all lovey-dovey. I'm angry, upset. And, but God helped me. And man, I, I prayed that prayer. I meant it. And God just, he just changed my heart. It doesn't always work that way. Sometimes he's like, okay, I'll help you, but, you know, you do it while you're mad, you know, kind of thing. But in that situation, man, my emotions all changed. I was able to go in, talk to my wife, tell her I was wrong, see, and, and, and ask her forgiveness. And, um, and the, the fact of the matter is, is we had healing, and we had an awesome day. 
And, you know, the old Ted would have had a, just a cruddy day all day long. It would have been just World War III and the a- aftermath of that. But I got to experience, and the, the point is, why did it happen? Well, it didn't happen because I white-knuckled through it. It happened because I was receptive to God's Word. It happened because I, I, I'm married to a woman who's receptive to God's word. And so we can say in the midst of that, hey, you know, this isn't so much working out. And God says we need to make a correction and do this. And so we were able to, to make those adjustments. And what I want you to consider, think about it, because here for, for, for Daniel, this is a time of great upheaval in his life. There, there, there has been, you know, an overthrowing of the nation of Babylon and, and so now the Medes and the Persians have taken over. This is kind of what's going on during this season. And what happens for us so often is we have those seasons of life where there's major, major upheaval, where there's major changes. Some of you this morning, you're going through a time of major upheaval in your life right now. Some of you, you're going through that time where you're thinking, I never signed up for this. I never expected I'd be going through this. And those are those intersections where God wants to meet us. Those are those intersections where God says, look, are you going to be receptive to me here? And that's what's going on with Daniel's life. And so to make sense of it, Daniel turns to Scripture, and that's where he finds his answer. And if we will turn to the Word of God, can I just tell you, that's why we have growth groups. That's why we beg you all the time, get plugged into a growth group. That's why we have parenting classes. That's why we have marriage retreats. That's why we're constantly focusing on doing everything we can, not just on Sunday morning, where we do teach chapter by chapter and verse by verse and wanting you to understand God's Word. It's because we understand that this is where you're going to find the answers to the real, very real issues that you're going through. And so this is what Daniel does. He turns to this. And I want to ask, which one are you? Are you the, the King Jehoiakim that's going to reject, that you're going to cut out, that you're going to burn these sections that, you would, that are inconvenient, that you'd really like, like not to deal with? Or are you going to be like Daniel and be receptive to God's word? And before you answer that too quickly, I want you to consider what James says. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And it's funny, the next verse, I don't have this on the screen for you, but he, in the next verse, he basically goes on to talk about, you know, it, whoever's a hearer, you know, of the, uh, or rather, who, whoever uh, is, is, uh, is, is just a hearer of the word, but not a doer of the word. He says, he's like a man that goes and looks at, in the mirror to see what he looks like, and then he goes away and, and, he, and he forgets who he is. You ever have that happen to you? I remember one day I went, I woke up in the morning, I looked in the mirror, my hair is all like this, you know, because I've been asleep. And, uh, and, and what do I care? I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm in my pajamas that morning, so I'm just kind of hanging out. And I decided, you know, a little bit later on that I was going to run down to the store. I forgot what I looked like in the mirror. I just threw my clothes on. I went down. I look in the rear view mirror. I'm like, holy smokes, that's what I just went into the store looking like. You know, everybody's looking at me, you know, that way. And um, so we do this. And so this is the idea where, man, I can't just listen, you know, in and out and really not do what it says. Otherwise, I'm just like that. And the point of the matter is when you don't do what God says, you've effectively rejected what he said. I really want you to get this because we can all readily agree and go, yeah, I can't be a hearer. I need to be a doer. But how often is it when I read in God's word and it says, hey, listen, I, I, I want you fathers not to exasperate your children. 
and I really don't pay attention to that. And, and in the discipline of my kids, I exasperate them because I give them, you know, capricious rules that they can't follow or, or whatever. I'm very strict on them. I don't give them the grace that they need, perhaps. Or the Bible instructs me, listen, I want you to serve, serve God with the gifts that he's given to you. And, and so then I promptly go out and I'm like, yeah, but that's inconvenient because, I, you know, I don't want to do that. You know, or the Bible tells us, look, you go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. You know, we're everyone called to just readily share, of our, share our faith. Be ready to give an account of the hope that lies within you. This is a commandment of God. This isn't for, you know, the guys, Pastor Cody, myself, who are going to, you know, stand up and teach God's works for everybody. And we go, eh, I'm, I, I'm shy. I don't like to do that. That takes a lot of boldness. I'm not willing to do that. Those, I mean, we're effectively, practically speaking, we're cutting those things out of our Bible. And listen, Luke, you know, Jesus put it so well in the Gospel of Luke. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? See, some of you are deceived because you think you're receptive when you're actually rejecting. You're more like King Jehoiakim than, than you are like Daniel, practically speaking. And so I just have you take a walk with that, and that leads us right into our next point. And I'm actually going to just dwell on this next point. This is what we're going to close on, but... Daniel wasn't just a man who was receptive to the Word of God. Daniel was also a man who responded to the Word of God. I mean, you can be receptive to it. You can be open to it. You can be, okay, yes, I'm going to listen to it, but are you going to respond to it? That's the question. See, and you'll notice in verse 3, here's what he says. He says, then I set my face, when, when then? When he had been in the Word, when he'd meditated on the Word, when he'd considered the Word, then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Now, this is, an, this is a strong response. And here's why it's a very strong response. Turn to Jeremiah 29. It's just to the left, a couple of books there. Go to, to Jeremiah 29. We're going, to, we're going to start with Jeremiah 29, verse 10, if you'll make your way there. We're talking about responding to the word. The idea being when God speaks to us, it commands a response. Daniel going to the Bible, looking at the prophecies of Jeremiah. He's pouring into them. He's saying, God, I, I want you to speak to me. Your servant is listening. You've gone to great lengths to give me this message. What are you saying to me? And he's been looking and seeing there in the, 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 the book of Jeremiah, hey, listen, you're supposed to be in captivity 70 years. Um, and then, you know, there's gonna, you're going to be released from your captivity. Daniel's like, you got my attention, God, because I, I can do the math. I see where we're at. This thing, we're in the home stretch here and I'm, I'm seeking you, I'm attentive to you. Lord, what do you want to say to me? Because I'm responding now and here's what God says to him. Jeremiah 29, he's got this scroll, verse 10, for thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place for, and you, you will recognize this verse, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. Now, I want you to think about where Daniel and the nation of Israel are. Where, where the people of Judah are. Where they are right now is in a place of discipline for 70 years of hard discipline. 
And they're there because it's their own stinking fault because they wouldn't listen to God. He begged them to listen to him. He sent the prophets to them. Don't do this. Because I'm going to, and it's you with your kids. You don't want to discipline your kids. You want to enjoy your kids. You want to spend time, you want to laugh with your kids. I mean, who enjoys disciplining their kids? You don't. You beg them to behave. And so God is like, oh, please don't do this. And yet they did it anyway. And so now they're in their, this place of discipline. And, and the place of discipline, if it's applied correctly, is painful. I mean, there's, there's just nothing worse. I mean, you know those times when you discipline your kid and they're kind of like, look at you, go, is that all you got? Kind of thing. You're like, oh, no, it's not all I've got, you know. And, and then what happens is when your kids are really disciplined, it breaks your heart. Because you're breaking their spirit. And those big old crocodile tears comes down. And you, as a parent, you're like, I don't want you here in this place. Now, when you're in that place, it's a horrible feeling. It's a horrible place to be broken. Some of you, you're there right now. And I know this because I'm praying about this. I'm seeking the Lord. I'm agonizing over the message. Lord, what do you have to say to your people? And the Lord's showing me that many of you here are in a season of discipline. And the Bible says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And some of you are reaping the whirlwind because you've sown to the wind. Some of you are going through an incredible time. And what you need to hear right now, because in God's chastening, it's painful. And the enemy piles on and he tells you, you're a blow it. God's angry with you. You can't come to God. Just you got what you got and that's what you get. And it ain't ever going to get any better. Hear the word of the Lord. He says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. God is saying this to the nation that has rebelled against him and is in captivity. And he says, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I have caused you to be carried away captive. And some of you are in that place today. You've been carried away captive. And God says, I will bring you back. Turn to me. Call to me. And now, as we read Daniel chapter 3, we, at nine, verse 3, we go... I get it. Why, why did he set his face toward the Lord and make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth and ashes? Why did he respond so extremely? Because he's been in captivity and he's desperate and he's been chastised by the Lord, he and his people. And he's saying, God, I'm crying out. You're good. You, you're merciful and you don't hate me. You love me and you tell me to cry out to you and I'm begging you. I'm coming to you with everything I've got. Hey, listen, we need to do that today. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that today at the close of the message because some of you have been in that place and you know because the Holy Spirit's speaking to you, you need to cry out to the Lord. You need to say, Lord, I've been rebellious. I've been disobedient. I've reaped what I've sown. And God, I need you and I need to cry out to you. And so I want you to hear as we go through this, and I'm just going to read it with a little bit of commentary. I want you to hear his prayer. Hear a man's prayer who has been in a place of rebellion and, 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 and set aside from God. Now you say, well, wait a minute, Daniel, he's been, a, he's been a righteous man. 
Yeah, but he understands it's me and my people. He understands I'm a sinful man. He understands that, that we've all sinned against the Lord. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I want you to hear a man who cries out to God, understanding that his right standing with God is coming from God. He says in verse 4, And I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made confession. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that word confess means to agree with God. Listen to a man agreeing with God. And I prayed to the Lord my God and I made confession. I agreed with God and I said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We've done wickedly and we've rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and to our princes, to our fathers, and all the people of the land. I just want to say this real quick, and this isn't in my notes, but he says, we've done this. Can you, can you just appreciate fathers in particular, men, I'm talking to you, that they're in this place, if King Jehoiakim, has, as a leader, had responded differently, do you think maybe the nation would have responded a little bit differently? Do you think if he, as a leader, had taken the right course of action, then the we here might have been completely different? We have loved you. We have followed you. We have served you. If King Jehoiakim had done that, as the leader goes, so goes the family. And some of you right now, you're, leave, you're living a life which basically says to your kids, do as I say, not as I do. Don't look too close. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And you just go ahead and do what I say. Let me tell you, your kids are going to turn out just like you. Your children will become you. And for some of us, that's a nightmare. You want your kids to be different? Repent. Repent. You lead your children the way you want them to be. You be the man that you want them to be. Because they'll never be the man you want them to be if you're not. Oh, Lord... Verse 7, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face, as it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those, in, uh, uh, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. You're good, God. That's not the question. We're bad. We're sinners. We've rebelled against you. It's not be so often we want to blame our consequences and our circumstances on a loving God who begged us not to do what we did in the first place. And we make it all God's fault when we need to take a long look in the mirror and go, why am I here? Because it's not God's fault. And that's what he's saying. He says, Verse 10, we've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yet, yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. 
And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster for under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. And we brought it on ourselves, is what he's saying. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Catch this. You can turn, you can turn today. You can turn right now. Your iniquities, the things that you're suffering through, you can turn today. This is the idea. He says, we didn't do it. We should have. I'm doing it now. Verse 14, therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, you who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. You've been faithful. You brought your people out with a mighty hand and made yourself a name. And it is this day, as it is this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. You haven't done it. We have. Oh, Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. In other words, he's not saying, oh, you know what, I got a condition. Oh, you know what, I've got, I've got this disease. I've got this illness. I've got, you know, it's not. Uh, no, he's saying it's sin. Let's just call it what it is. I'm not making excuses. I'm not going to whatever. I, I'm a sinner. Now, therefore, verse 17, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. Hear this. He's not saying, okay, I got it right, I heard, and now I'm white-knuckling it, and now, you know, I've done a couple of good works, and now I can come to you because, you know, I, I've made everything right, and I've, and I, and I've got it all together. He, this, that's not what he's saying. He's saying the opposite of that. He says, we're a piece of work and we want you to save us and not because we're getting it together, but because we are so lost without you. That's the point. That's what God wants you to pray today. Some of you, you're held in the place where you think, I, I, I got what I got and this is who I am and I can't do it and I, and I feel like a hypocrite coming. Good, you are a hypocrite. Just say it. God, forgive me. I'm a blow it. I can't do it. And, I, and I'm going to make this confession and I'm going to make this prayer without any hope that I'm going to white knuckle it to make it better. I'm making it knowing darn well who I am and I'm crying out to you saying, would you forgive me? Would you change me? Because you're my only hope. Verse 19, oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Make that the prayer of your heart today. Oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Some of you have been in a season of discipline. And you need to turn to the Lord. God wants you to repent. And his heart towards you is a heart of love. 
There's an interesting story that takes place in Acts chapter 3, and, and you'll recall it, where Peter and John, they're going up to the temple to pray, and they pass by this beggar. He's there every single day. He's a fixture there in town, and he's by this, what's called the beautiful gate, which is kind of the irony at the story, because it's a very unsightly kind of thing. And, and so they, they stop, and they're like, you know, he's asking them for money, and they say, hey, look at us. And he gets the guy to look at him, and, and they say, hey, silver and gold we, we, we don't have, but what we do have, we give you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And the man in faith rises up and walks, and he loses his mind. He's like jumping around, and he's all happy. And they walk into the temple, and everybody in the temple just loses it. They're like, are you kidding me? This guy's been lame. And they all swarm Peter and John like they've got something to do with it. And, and so here Peter's got this captive audience, and so he starts preaching. You know, typical preacher. He's got a crowd. He's like, all right, here we go. So he's talking. And, uh, and basically, he says, look, don't, you're looking at us like we healed this guy. We didn't do it. Jesus Christ did it. By the way, if I'm going to tell you about Jesus Christ, you killed him. Do you remember, Peter says, you guys, here's Jesus. You made this guy well. You guys think it's miraculous. You killed the guy. And you begged for, the, for, for them to release a murderer in his place. And Peter goes on to say this. He says, repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The Lord says that to you today. Repent, be converted. Repent means to turn. Just means to say, Lord, I make a decision. And we need to make that decision today. God, I made a train wreck out of it. And I'm turning to you. I want to close with this. I just want you to understand the heart of God. In Luke 15, there's a story that Jesus tells about a prodigal son. I think we've all heard it, right? There's, there, here's this guy. He takes his inheritance, and he goes out, and he blows it. He just blows his dad off. He, he lives just a, a horrible life. And, um, and so there he is, and he's like, I, I've, I've sinned against my father. I've sinned against everybody. I've, done, I've made a mess of my life. And now he's literally eating his dinner in a pig's trough. And so he starts thinking about how good he had it at his father's house. And so he thinks, you know what, I'm going to go back there and I'll beg him for a job. And maybe he'll just let me work with like all of his servants. At least they eat better than this. And so he goes back to beg his father if he can be forgiven and just have that position of the servant. And the beautiful part about the story isn't just that the dad receives him to himself. It's how his dad receives him. Because what happens is you see the father and he sees him coming and the text makes it clear he saw him coming from a long way off. And do you know what that means? That means that dad spent his days looking as far down the road as he could watching for his son to come back every single day. See, today, today, he's going to come back. And I imagine that, Father. I put myself in his position and I, I imagine me looking and finding where's the farthest point in the road that I can see. I want to watch for the, for the faintest hint of my son. Oh, it's right there, and I'm gonna, that's, where, that's where I'm going to look every single day. Well, I tell you that story because what we see in the next three verses here, we see the heart of the father for the prodigals. Verse 20, he says, Now while I was speaking, this is Daniel saying, Look, I'm, I, he's begging the Lord. He's in this place. 
Two minutes here and we're done. While I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplications before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, you might want to circle or underline that, reached me about the time of the evening prayer. This would have been about 3 p.m., the time of the evening prayers. When you read that, it kind of sounds like you know, it took him a long time to reach him. We're going to see that it, that it didn't. That's just the way it sounds right now. Verse 22. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand at the beginning of your supplications. Underline that. At the beginning of your supplications. At the farthest point down that road. The beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Give me your attention. This is the heart of the Father watching for that prodigal to say, look, I've just been watching and waiting for you to cry out to me. Daniel, you are greatly beloved. And listen, the Lord would say that to you today. No matter where you're at, no matter what you've done, no matter how much of a mess you've made of your life, the Lord is looking for you just to turn and to confess and to cry out to Him. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that now as we close in prayer. And this is that time, and you need to know that the Lord loves you with an incredible love. And there are, there are some of you here, you've never surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive Him. And there are many of you here today that you've, that you've been disobedient to God and you're guilty of cutting sections of his word out and of burning those sections and of burying those sections. And you know because God's spoken to you and I'm going to give you an invitation today. I'm going to give you the, the same invitation at the same time. We're going to close in prayer and I'm going to ask you if that's you, repent today.